0: Welcome to The Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. My guest today is Colin Smothers. He is the Executive Director of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or the CBMW for short. Um, Recently, uh, Pastor Rick Warren was on the Russell Moore podcast and um, was honestly really candid about how his thinking about... um, whether or not the Bible permits uh, women to be pastors has has evolved over the last few years. And uh, it was a very fascinating conversation. Uh, I think it um, kind of foreshadowed a lot of the arguments and uh, kind of the direction where the, the discourse on this is going to be headed, uh, especially if you're Southern Baptist. This is kind of, um, I think, the, the, the battle that is going to be um, kind of waged in New Orleans this year. And um, so I wanted to have Colin on to kind of address um, Pastor Warren's arguments um, and uh, just talk more you know, broadly about how uh, the church has in a lot of ways been conformed to the world's way of thinking about, um, you know, what it means to be, um, you know, made equal, you know, men and women are equal and, and you know, how we've kind of adopted Uh, maybe a a worldly way of of thinking about that and so it's a really great conversation uh, which we will jump into in a minute but uh, before that uh, if you are watching on YouTube go ahead and hit like and subscribe I want to thank everyone um, on Twitter earlier this week who got us over a thousand subscribers so that's a a big milestone Uh, means we can uh, start monetizing the channel and um you know, hopefully cover some of the cost of producing this show. So a big thanks to everyone who uh, jumped on and subscribed. I uh, really appreciate it. So just keep sharing the show and I hope that you continue to find it valuable. So uh, big thanks there. Um, yeah. So let's uh, jump right into my conversation with Colin. Thanks for joining me, Colin.
1: Thanks for having me on Josh.
0: All right. So recently, uh, um, Rick Warren sat down with Russell Moore on uh the Russell Moore podcast and uh was was frankly really candid about how he's shifted uh his thinking on um the topic of complementarianism and and specifically whether or not women can be pastors. Can you kind of uh you know explain what his argument was there?
1: Yeah, it was really fascinating. Uh, I tuned in with interest when Russell Moore sat down with Rick Warren on the podcast, and they started talking about uh, his position on women pastors, especially as it touches the SBC. So I'm currently uh, serving at a Southern Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky, Kenwood Baptist Church. Uh, Formerly was pastoring, a senior pastor, uh, a small Southern Baptist church in Wichita, Kansas. So I'm uh, deeply invested in this. I'm a two-time graduate of Southern Seminary um so I wanted to know what you know is going through Rick Warren's head to uh to make these changes these pretty radical changes that's going on at Saddleback. And uh what was what I found fascinating is how new his his position is. So he says on that mm-hmm. podcast that he didn't start getting settled in this position until really COVID, in the middle of COVID, he started reading all these books in 2020. So Rick Warren's position on these things is less than three years old, and it seemed like what he his main arguments um, it, it it was totally uh, astray or, or or away from the traditional complementarian texts or even really egalitarian texts that you um, you find he didn't go to Galatians three twenty eight he didn't go to First Timothy two to try to you know figure out how his position fits with those texts he goes to Matthew twenty eight the Great Commission. And he says, this is Jesus talking to all of his disciples, and he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that that I command. And so right there, he finds um, sort of warrant for all Jesus' disciples, men and women, to teach, which he says is preaching in the church. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it seems like it yeah. goes from there to, uh, to the early reports from Jesus's disciples, uh, specifically the women, uh, after Jesus's resurrection, it was women that first came to the tomb and it was women that came back and told the the apostles that Jesus wasn't there anymore. He, he had risen from the dead. And, uh, and he calls that, you know, the first Christian sermon, uh, Josh, you're not a pastor, are you? I'm not no. I know there was some confusion at TGC whether or not you you were or weren't a pastor. Um, but Josh, have you ever shared your testimony before? Have you ever told somebody about how you you know become a Christian? Well, I don't know if you knew that. When you I were have. doing that, you were preaching a sermon by sh- by sharing your testimony. You're preaching a sermon. That's essentially Rick Warren's logic here. Because the women came and mm-hmm. and told their experience, they preached the first Christian sermon. Therefore, who are we to limit their their abilities and their gifts in, in the local church.
0: Yeah. I, I saw one response, uh, on Twitter, um, pointing out that, that the great commission is, is given to everyone. I, my kids, you know, my, my, uh, nine year old son, you know, at Christmas was telling our neighbor, um, uh, across the street, uh, his neighbor friend about the nativity and, and Jesus and explaining who that was. So that mean, my son, you know, can now be a, a pastor. As well.
1: Not only can not only, yeah, not only can't can he be a pastor, but he's already preached his first sermon. Um, so he's there a preacher. Go. Yeah, it, you know, I found it really curious because I think what what Rick Warren's uh reading of this text does, or these texts, it it makes him either a better understander of the Great Commission than the Apostle Paul. So when Paul is writing first Timothy two twelve to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, Did Paul miss the Great Commission message then? That no, Jesus told everybody to teach. And Paul's saying he doesn't permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man. So either Rick Warren understands the Great Commission better than the Apostle Paul, or perhaps even more uh, dangerous, the Apostle Paul is in direct conflict or direct disobedience to Jesus Christ when he limits, even, you know, given the egalitarian arguments, even if he's making a cultural, um, you know, accommodation there in Ephesus. Well, that mm-hmm. would be disobeying the Great Commission in order to appease the culture around you. I mean, it, it, no matter what way you slice it, Rick Warren's reading of the text makes the Apostle Paul look pretty, pretty misogynist and, and not really uh, wanting to obey Christ in the Great Commission.
0: Yeah, and even though he didn't explicitly, you know, affirm kind of the red letter interpretation, it it seems like he's elevating, you know, t- teachings of Jesus over the teachings of Paul and so, you know, this interpretation he's he's getting from the great commission carries more weight than what Paul taught.
1: That's right. And and that's only, you know, the biblical argument. He he did a number of different things in that podcast interview you know, he, he's trying to make the argument that it might be racist to not affiliate Mm -hmm. with, you know, black churches that do ordain women and do have more, you know, women in, in leadership. So therefore, if the SBC, you know, holds the 2000 year old position of Christian orthodoxy that, you know, men are called to lead in the church, then we might be a racist denomination. Um, there was that argument. That was, that was fascinating. There's also the argument that, um, I can't remember what, what, what his, what his third argument was. Do, do you remember which, what the, uh, he, he had so many, he had so many Dad. things. It felt like he was just throwing things at the wall to see which one would, Oh, I know what it was. It was the, uh, he, he made appeals to the preamble, uh, of the Baptist faith and message 2000, which to me was a very narrow and, and kind of misguided reading the preamble. He's saying the preamble explicitly says that it is not binding on churches. Well, if you go and read the preamble of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it doesn't say that at all. What it says is the, the Baptist Faith and Message is not binding on consciences, which is a very different argument. That's a, um, that's a, that's a specifically Baptist argument of the, the freedom of the conscience, liberty of the conscience. But what it does say is that uh, it is a tool or, or really a, an instrument for doctrinal accountability. And that right there um, is the part of the preamble that Rick Warren is not uh, taking into, into account in his position. That, and that's what the SBC, at least those in favor of the amendment going into New Orleans, those in favor of disfellowshipping Saddleback over um, ordaining you know, women to the pastorate, they're trying to use the Baptist faith and message as intended by the preamble. Uh, as an instrument of doctrinal accountability. In the preamble, it also says that the these articles summarize what's essential. I, I just read this this morning. What is essential for Baptist faith and practice? So Rick Warren is essentially taking on the entire Baptist faith and message, at least that article, and saying that is no longer essential. It's not essential for Baptist faith and practice. If you're going to make that argument, make that argument. We need to amend the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That's not what he's trying to say though. He's trying to say that the as it is written now, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 should allow uh churches like his or even be uh be glad to accept and to have in their fellowship churches like his.
0: Mhm. Well, and the other argument he he made was that you know, this is this is a minor thing that you know, we shouldn't be concerned with when there's so much, you know, there's bigger problems of abuse that should be dealt with. Right. This is, this seems like, you know, majoring on the minors.
1: Right. Yeah. And I thought Denny Burke, you know, he wrote an article in response to this podcast and he thought, I thought he put it really well that um, we should never put those things at odds, you know, obedience to Christ and his word uh, should never be put at odds to caring for people that, you know, that have been abused or that, that might be abused in our churches. Those things are not, um, opposed to one another. Faithfulness to Christ will always be the best way to care for the abused. We don't get to set aside, oh, well, we don't really care about, you know, idolatry right now in the church. We've got to deal with abuse. That's, that's just an absurd mm-hmm. argument on its face. Christ, uh, when he's asked, what is the, the person uh, or the greatest commandment he says the the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. That is our first duty as Christians, as men and women created in the image of God to love God and to figure out how to do that best with our whole person. And then the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're only going to try to do that second commandment without attention to that first, you're going to go into all kinds of misguided directions and it's going to end up very very bad for you. You're going to end up um a, a totally progressive liberal denomination, which is no longer, you know, in, um, in Christian
0: orthodoxy. Hmm. Um, so the other thing that, that, you, you know, I, if the two arguments that really, really bugged me were, were the ones you mentioned, the, the racist, you know, that it's racist not to, uh, you know, to disfellowship from churches, right. Uh, because we see that a lot in, in black churches. Um, and, uh, the other one was, was this, uh, you know, tying it to abuse, like putting it at odds with abuse. Uh, and those bugged me so much because that is, those are two, um, I see vulnerable points, uh, in the SBC in that we, we have a, a, um, you know the history of the SBC is we've had a race problem mm-hmm. that is, that is undeniable. Um, you know, as many times as we you know have have dealt with it in the past, you know it's 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 always out there, kind of looming. Uh, and I, so I think there's there's very much a sense among a lot of pastors that um, we need to to keep addressing this and keep uh, being sensitive to this. So I'm, I'm worried that this that's going to be a very powerful argument for a lot of pastors. Do you think that's going to carry some weight?
1: You know, uh, it's hard to tell what is going to have purchase on the floor of the, the Southern Baptist convention. Uh, it always seems like you're walking in every single day and you have no idea who's going to hit the mic, what arguments are going to be, you know, fronted and what arguments are, are not going to, you know, get traction at all. Um, but I, I am worried if, <clears throat> if those If that's the lens—the lens of oppressor oppression—is the lens that we're going to use to evaluate uh, Christian orthodoxy, you know, theological conviction, how we should order our churches. If that's the lens we're going to view this thing through, instead of what does God's word say and what does faithfulness to God's word mean, uh, then yeah, we're going to head in a very dangerous uh, direction. And and you're right to say that not only is it the a vulnerable, um, you know, angle with the Southern Baptist convention, but it's very much the live issue, you know, for our culture today. Um, it, it's not an accident that race, gender, and sexuality are sort of the trifecta of, of issues that are running through our institutions, um, marching through institutions, if you know what I mean, and, mm-hmm. and taking them on and, completely, uh, intentionally deconstructing them and trying to construct them in a different direction and different, uh, even on different foundations, that race, gender, sexuality, um, what I've called before, like the, the intersection, intersectional oppression matrix, that those are related for a reason. It's not to mm-hmm. say that there, there aren't genuine historical harms that need to be righted, but those harms are leveraged and used by very insidious uh, movements, progressive movements, to to sneak in these agendas. I mean, your your podcast is called the the Great Awakening. Uh, what I'm talking about here is is wokeness. You know, there was this this whole thing recently last week about people not being able to define wokeness. Well, I can give you a definition of wokeness. What it means to be woke is to intentionally use that trifecta: race, gender, and sexuality. That oppressor oppression. Uh, which which is, um, th- those issues are kind of all bound together by this understanding of intersectionality, that you have hierarchies of oppression, you use those things with a specific aden- agenda toward cultural Marxism. Um, that is what wokeness is to to rewrite our institutions uh, under those, or or at least w- under the guise of fixing oppression and race, oppression and gender oppression. In sexuality it's the reason why you know everybody remembers back in 2020 when you when you saw the blM um you know doctrinal uh statement you know they're, they're talking about what do they stand for uh well they've got a whole entire um a whole entire uh, section there about destroying or undermining the nuclear family well what does that have to do with blackness or whiteness nothing unless you think about it through this cultural Marxist lens, they had an entire section about supporting being allies with LGBTQIA plus people. What does that have to do with race? Well, it, it doesn't, unless you recognize that race, gender, sexuality are tied up under the same, under that same uh, agenda that is trying to, again, deconstruct and reconstruct uh, according to progressive ideas.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, this is, this is part of, of what I think many of us were concerned about, um, several years ago when, um, I think it was, was it resolution nine? Yep. Um, 2019, uh, right? SBC. Yep. 2019, there was a resolution, um, submitted to condemn critical race theory. And I, you know, I don't know that, you know, all of our concerns were properly articulated. So it seemed like, Whoa, whoa whoa, this is this seems like we're taking a step back. You know, SBC's had problems with racism. you know, it goes into committee. It's kind of rewritten to be, you know, kind of have some of the teeth taken out of it. And um, you know, i I feel like we're kind of seeing some of the fruit of that reluctance to take a hard stand on on that. and now those those, you know tentacles, those tendrils are spreading into other issues. and um you know, I think, the time is right for the SBC to take, you know, hard stand and, you know, draw that line in the sand. Like, no, we're going to stand on scripture. Even if that means that we're perpetually labeled the, the racist, you know, denomination, the, the sexist dominant, you know, denomination, you know, whatever, you know, we're going to stand with scripture, not with, um, these like cultural, um, you know, narratives.
1: I totally agree with you. Um, Whatever the new anti-racism that Ibram Kendi and others are are pushing, uh, the Southern the Southern Baptist Convention has to realize that if we adopt his framework, then you're talking about Martin Luther King Jr. being a racist under that framework. Even Barack Obama, some of the policies and the and the things that he did would come under uh, judgment according to the anti-racism of Ibram Kendi. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, and the second thing I'd say is I was in the room when that resolution was passed in 2019. And, and first of all, I genuinely do not think that the majority of Southern Baptists knew what critical race theory was. So we were voting mm-hmm. on something that was, had just only to those that were paying paying attention, entered the vocabulary. And those that had encountered it, um, or the majority of them, I think the vast majority of them, had, had seen that and, and thought, um, according to the original proposal of the, of the resolution. This is something we don't want to play around with. And so that was the, you know, the reason behind that resolution. But then uh, the resolutions committee changed it. And then what came out was what was not intended, I think, by the initial submission. And then Southern Baptists, you know, it, those that haven't gone to the convention maybe don't realize the dynamic a lot of times with those resolutions. Oftentimes, I think to to our peril, those resolutions are getting voted on the last day at the very end of the last day of the convention, people are tired. They want to go home. They don't want to uh, debate the finer points of critical race theory uh, when they've, they're trying to catch a flight or they've already been to you know, three days of convention and, and they're just done. And yeah. I think that's part of what happened with the critical race theory uh, resolution. The reason why I say that is I actually had submitted uh, a resolution that same um, year, and it was actually in the same slate of resolutions. My resolution was you know, the Pentagon had had made this study committee about whether or not we should include women into the draft. Um, and they were reporting that out that year uh, that the recommendation was, yes, we should include uh, American women alongside American men if the draft were ever to uh, to be instigated or if, if uh, you know, they keep a role, Selective Service keeps a role. So therefore, requiring women to enroll in the same way that we currently require men uh, when they turn 18 to enroll for selective service, unless you have some, you know, theological or, or conscious reason against it. Well, my resolution was against that. And the Southern Baptist convention hardly debated that. In fact, it, it, it wasn't even, um, it, it didn't even get really, uh, floor time because everyone was kind of concerned about this critical race theory thing. But even then the debate did not last long. And somebody called the question and the motion Carried, although it wasn't unanimous. You know, most of those resolutions get carried pretty unanimously um, in that in that room. It wasn't unanimous, but I think you're exactly right. Had we been more clear back then in 2019 on this issue, uh, we might not be in the in the place that we are today.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah. let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Um, why does this matter theologically? Like, you know, if women want to. Preach and you know, exposit Scripture on a Sunday morning. Aren't people learning about Jesus? Isn't that you know building up the church? Why is this a problem that needs to be addressed?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's the question to ask, and um, you know, I'm going to try to answer in a way that I, you know, I've got my hat on as the executive director of of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. A lot of times, you know, in a lot of ways, this is my my day job, but I'm going to take that hat off and I want to talk about this as a Southern Baptist. Um, you know, the conservative resurgence that was successful and a complete historical anomaly, if you look at denominational history, Christian history uh, throughout the years, what happened was a, a denomination that was going liberal, progressive, uh, was turned around. The institutions were totally captured in the Southern Maps Convention. The, the school that I studied at had, um, you know, way back in the in the 80s, and the 90s, had open lesbian professors. This is when lesbianism wow. in American culture was not popular. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it, Will and Grace hadn't happened yet, you know. Uh, lesbianism was still very much closeted. And there was an open professor uh, at Southern Seminary teaching. And, and advocating for this position. So that's how liberal we're talking the Southern Baptist Convention was, Southern Seminary was. And what happened was the convention was rescued, was taken uh, taken back from progressivism and liberalism back to a more conservative, Bible-based uh, convention and denomination. I think part of the reason that is is because we are a convention of churches. We're a bottom-up, um, more populist uh, denomination than, than other denominations. You don't have the elite, uh, you know, leadership handing down dictums from closed room door or closed uh, door rooms. But you really have the denomination in the hands of the people and the people um, are schooled on a diet of Bible, 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 week in and week out. And so they look at their Bibles and they look at what's going on with Molly Marshall of the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary. And they say, that's not in the Bible. In fact, that's against the Bible. So we're going to go with the Bible. I say all that because the, the conservative resurgence was what some people termed a battle over the Bible. What is the authority, what is the position of the authority of Scripture in our denomination? Is there any other authority that we're going to appeal to besides the Bible that's going to um, you know govern life and practice in our church? Can we contradict the Bible? In our creeds and our confessions, in our teaching, at our seminaries, in our in our pulpits, at our at our churches. And what happened is the issue of women pastors became the proxy battle over which this war for the Bible was fought. Because it's very hard when you open the scriptures and you read First Timothy 2:12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. To make that say the exact opposite, so you got to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics and telling people to not believe their lying eyes, uh, in order for them to go along with women pastors. In other words, what you're doing is you're undermining the authority of Scripture, and that's what I'm concerned about ultimately. I think what this does is this is the first step, and and this is uh, across the board. This is the first step. Uh, that every denomination, every liberal progressive denomination takes on the road to progressivism and liberalism. Mm -hmm. Here's a challenge for you. I I would challenge all listeners to try to find yourself a complementarian church that is affirming homosexuality, affirming of gay marriage. You will not find it. You won't find one. Every single church that affirms homosexuality is doctrinally egalitarian. You ask, well, why? How are those connected? Well, they are because once you uh, compromise on this issue, when pastors in the Bible, then you can reread Romans one as culturally you know instantiated, and maybe Paul didn't know what he's talking about, or maybe it was an accommodation for the Roman culture. But you know, we know so much more in the twenty first century, yada yada yada, and all of a sudden, scripture's a wax nose that you can make it say whatever your cultural heart wants. And desires that's the that's the issue that I'm concerned about
0: yeah well said. Um, so kind of flipping that around can you maybe speculate why don't the 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 people pushing for this there's plenty of other denominations that are egalitarian why are they trying to you know kind of ram this through? Uh, um, the Southern Baptists. why, why can't they just depart and align with another, um, denomination?
1: If I was a mind reader, I could answer that question infallibly, but here's, here's my attempt. The Southern Baptist convention is a conservative denomination and it's doing pretty well. Uh, it's the largest Protestant denomination in the world. um, its seminaries are the largest seminaries in the world. Uh, its churches, even though, you know, there is this narrative of decline, which is is affecting all, you know, Christian denominations in America and across the world, um, are churches that are being planted, that are being, um, you know, revitalized. They're generally healthy churches and they're, and they're doing well. In some ways, I think at least the external forces look at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and they're mad about it, because here is this uh, this bastion of conservatism, at, at least currently, that hasn't fully bowed the knee uh, to the cultural winds. Like we still, our Baptist Faith and Message still says the office of pastor is limited to qualify, to men qualified by Scripture. That's what it says. The Baptist Faith and Message two thousand which is why if if you i mean think about this Russell Moore left the the Southern Baptist Convention he's not a, he's no longer SBC Beth Moore no yeah. longer in the SBC some people that are currently advising our um abuse task force some of the main players they are not SBC they're not a part of SBC churches why are they so invested in what's going on in the SBC just like you said Go join the denomination that you are totally aligned with that does permit, you know, women to hold the office of pastor and let the Southern Baptist Convention continue to do what we've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. I, I, I can't answer that question apart from envy and power uh, and apart from the very existence of a conservative denomination. Southern Baptist Convention um, sort of stands in judgment over uh, com- more compromised denominations. If you're in the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're in the mud already, you want other people to join you in the mud. You people that are still smelling sweet and clean, uh, they're sort of, again, standing in judgment over you. It's the same thing that happens, you know, when you're, um, I, I'm a parent, you know, I've got five kids, one more on the way. Um, and sometimes, you know, we would do do things differently uh, than our in-laws or my parents. And it's kind of like, well, why why are you doing that differently? Like, it it seems like you you've changed um from from what we did therefore your your differences are sort of condemning the way that you were brought up or or that you did things so i think an element of that is is going on too um mm-hmm. that there's there's a uh, there's a difference and therefore we're not we're not homogeneous we don't line up exactly with uh you know what's what's being Played on loudspeakers from CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times, um, we are resisting, uh, and I think that 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 angers people.
0: Yeah, um, you've written um, somewhere I forget where um, about um, the difference uh, or the 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 way that we have taken um, we've misunderstood equality um that men and women are equal before god and we've kind of sw- swapped out um that out with the concept of interchangeability yes that we are completely interchangeable can you explain that concept
1: yeah absolutely i actually got this from um something cs lewis wrote if you haven't ever read his essay priestesses in the church you know this question was facing um his denomination you know anglican uh, church in in England, back in the 30s and the 40s, and he was opposed to ordaining women to the priesthood. Uh, maybe that's news to C.S. Lewis fans, but he definitely very much was. In fact, if you read Mere Christianity, um, it's a complementarian book. He didn't call himself a complementarian; uh, that word was invented in the 1980s. But he has a whole section on there on marriage and male headship, husband headship, uh, and Remember what mere Christianity is all about. He's trying to just give you the essentials of of Christian faith and practice. So I think that's remarkable. Uh, but this mm-hmm. concept of interchangeability. Um, I, so I, I wrote an article uh, for Icon, which is CBMW's academic journal, back in I think it was spring 2019, and the article was titled "The Fallacy of Interchangeability." And what I'm trying to argue in that in that article is that. This concept of equality very quickly slips into uh, the concept of interchangeability and that is part of the philosophical uh, greasing of the skids for uh, not only egalitarianism but also homosexuality and all, and then transgenderism. Um, so the, it basically goes like this: um, if your concept of male female equality, which we want to affirm, right? CBMW Denver statement says men and women are equal before God, equally bearing the divine image, uh, equal as male and female in dignity and worth. That's all true. But if your concept of equal means interchangeable, meaning there's no material difference between men and women, such that a woman can do exactly everything that a man can do and vice versa, then you, right there, that's the concept of interchangeability. You open yourself to all sorts of errors. So I think this is what feminism uh Catechize the American American culture into um, which is what I'm why I'm so concerned about it is what it said is a woman can do anything a man can do period, um, so you know before there were certain spheres and certain offices and and other things that were not open to women they were limited to men well the feminist argument comes along and says well a woman can do uh, not only all that a man can do but Annie get your gun probably better than you can <laughs> you know. Better mm-hmm. than a man can, so um, you know a woman can be a pastor. Thank you very much. You know a woman uh, can do all these other things. Well, you're 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 being schooled in interchangeability there. Then the argument comes: Well, if a woman can do anything a man can do, then can a woman perform the function of husband? Can she interchange instead of you know a male and a female in marriage? then you can have a male and a male. There's no difference after all between men and women. So why can't I marry a woman? Or why can't I marry mm-hmm. a man? Uh, so, so a woman and a man, there's no difference. They're interchangeable. Therefore, that that right there is the argument for homosexuality, gay marriage. It's why egalitarianism is connected to affirmation of homosexuality. And then, you know, take that one step further, if there's really no material difference between men and women, if men and women truly are interchangeable, then why can't I just be a woman? Uh, Why can't I tomorrow just wake up and say, yeah, I'm a woman. Uh, Nothing needs to change with me because I'm interchangeable with women. That's the concept of interchangeability that I think when we're talking about male-female equality, we have to be very careful uh, to say what we mean and what we don't mean, especially in these conversations about women pastors and preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention.
0: Mm -hmm. And one one of the things I've noticed in um, a lot of your more conservative um, churches, in the SB, SBC and elsewhere, is that there is um, an agreement with scripture that there are different roles. Uh, but there seems to be a really, a uh, real reluctance at rooting those differences in nature, that hmm. this is just kind of one of those commands of scripture that, you know, because it's in scripture, we're going to abide by it. But you know, really there's no difference in it. This is just an arbitrary thing that God has, you know, decided. Um, why is that view wrong?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's wrong, first of all, because, you know, even though I am, I'm certainly, uh, you know, a lot more keen on natural law or natural law theory uh, than than maybe some of my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, uh, I would just appeal to the Bible and say, look how the Bible argues. Uh, first of all, you have Genesis 1 and 2 setting up uh, equality between uh, the male and the female, the men and women, and difference. There's even difference in the way that they're created. Why didn't God, I think this is a really important question, why didn't God create Adam and Eve at the exact same time? He could have, to, to point to their equality, but he didn't. He created Adam first had him name all the animals, put him to sleep. Uh, once he saw that he was alone, took a rib from his side and made the woman, built the woman. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew verbs there, God makes the man from the ground a different verb than God builds like a house, the woman from the side of the man. I think there's actually some vocational um, hints there at, you know, the, the man from the ground oriented to the ground, the woman from the, from the man oriented to the to the man. In other words, there's a reason why God made the way that he did, and there's a reason why his creation looks the way and functions the way that it does today. And so then when you go to, um, you know, for instance, 1 Timothy 2, the the scripture we've been talking about a few times here, and you see why is it that Paul uh, does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? He actually gives a, a reason. He doesn't just say, just because you know I'm an I'm an apostle, therefore uh, you got to do what I say. That's not what he says. He says right there for Adam's created, man was created first, then Eve. In other words, he he appeals to Genesis one and two and the order, the creation order, as to why the order in the church has to be the way that it that that it does. Otherwise, you're undermining or going against the grain of. God's good creation. So, uh, you know, when we see men in nature across societies um being naturally disposed to leading, uh providing and protecting, and we say we should say hallelujah and amen. Look at God's good creation, good world, it comports with, it it fits with what God has revealed in in his word. And we shouldn't expect it to be any other way. It, it, it would be really bizarre. Although, you know, I, I could see a world in which God gives us all these commands to do opposite of what would be fitting with his own design. Um, but that's just not what the way he did it. He He made the world in a way that um, is congruent with his will for that world. We see Paul making the same arguments in 1 Corinthians 11, whether or not, you know, regardless of your interpretation of head coverings, he's saying there needs to be this. This specific ordering in the household of God, because of the order of creation, because of the way that God created the world, and right there, that what that is is just an appeal to creation, or or a, an appeal to to nature as God created it.
0: Mm-hmm. What I think I find so fascinating about so many of the arguments to you know in favor of egalitarianism is you you'll see people you know appeal to like well you know that you're going to lose the next generation if you don't mm. embrace this because the you know the young people they're they're so egalitarian they want to see equality and they they can sniff out the misogyny behind you know complementarianism um but then you look at a lot of the trends that are happening with young people and i'm think, thinking of things like the the trad wife thing <clears> that seems to be exploding on um Twitter, where women are kind of rediscovering a lot of the natural uh, ordering of things that that's actually pleasurable. That's that they Mm -hmm. enjoy that Mm -hmm. they don't want to go submit to you know a stranger (laughs) at at work when they can be home and you know serve their household and and you know raise the kids and um, even I think of uh, writers like Louise Perry who I've had on the show who is a feminist who has kind of come back around to. No wait, there are very real differences between men and women, and um you know, I think you know in our attempts to try and reach the culture, we're kind of missing uh, a significant trend of what culture seems to be rediscovering um, on its own.
1: yeah, I think you're exactly right i've I've noticed the same things, and um I would just quote the eminent theologian uh, Ian Malcolm from. Jurassic Park, where he says nature finds a way. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing. You know, if you if you take a hammer and you try to paint your living room with it, eventually you're gonna realize this isn't what it was made for. You know, I, I better go get the paintbrush and and stick with using the hammer for nailing or hammering and nails and use a paintbrush for painting the room. Um, we have to pay attention to what we are designed for. Otherwise, we're going to find frustration upon frustration. I mean, why wouldn't we want to figure out why it is that God made us the way that we uh that we are made and then um act accordingly and and live accordingly because it's it's in his word and in his will that we're gonna find uh the most satisfying life and the and the best human flourishing that's that's available
0: mm-hmm. how can um how can churches begin to talk about, uh, some of these things. Like I, 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 I love listening to a lot of the, um, conversations happening on the new, right. Cause there seems to be this kind of fearlessness to talk about things you're not supposed to talk about. Mm. And I feel like in the church, we still have a lot of those like, well, we can't talk about, you know, it, it, much less like whether it's permitted for women to work outside the home. We can't even have the discussion of like is this the best way to order a family what what is you know what is best for christian discipleship of our kids um there's there seems to be like an over um an know uh, an over um emphasis on uh christian liberty in that we don't want to offend we that we you know we take it so far that we won't even talk about these things without binding consciences right how can we kind of step into those conversations more.
1: Yeah. Um, this is where I'm just a huge advocate for expositional preaching of the word and the whole counsel of God's word. So, um, you know, if you preach the entire Bible, if you don't, you know, pick and choose your hobby horses or, um, you know, only want to study or, or promote those things that are going to uh, you know, get your cultural points. But if, if you really are committed to the whole counsel of God's word and preaching that from the pulpit, teaching that in Sunday school, you know, reading that as a family in the home, then you're going to come across those texts that challenge our modern notions of family, our modern notions of what it means to be a husband and a wife, uh, what it means to be church members. So, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to, to preach through the pastorals when I was a pastor at First Baptist Mays um and i had to preach you know the household text in in Timothy and Titus um and it was a joy it was it was challenging it was it was convicting uh, for myself as well um so i think that we need to be whole bible people i think we need to uh be paying attention to all the whole counsel of god's word and committed to to teaching that and i think what you'll find is you know if god's word has everything that we need for life and godliness which is what it says that it does then uh that there is our blueprint blueprint for for ministry, for ordering our lives. Uh so I would just pick up resources that continue to make much of the Bible and continue to point us back to the Bible and all of the Bible. You know, don't be like Rick Warren and just hang out in Matthew 28. You know, go over to 1 Timothy 2, uh see what it says, uh see what Titus 2 says and see how that's gonna uh gonna challenge your your notions uh of what you think, you know, might be right or wrong. Uh, for your family.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh to that end, you know, resources you guys at CBMW have a new curriculum out that That's helps right. Yeah. This.
1: So I've got it right here. It's it's called Male and Female He Created Them. Uh see if I can get it on camera here. It's uh, published with Christian Focus and just out last week. Uh I saw that Amazon somehow already ran out of stock, so we're hoping books are on their way to to restock the inventory. But this is just an eight week study that you can take with um, take up as a small group, as a Sunday school, take up even as a as a family um, and be able to walk through the pertinent texts that have to do with specifically you know who we are as male and female with an eye toward especially the LGBT insanity that's cha- challenging you know the church on that point. So we're talking about uh, homosexuality. We're talking about transgenderism. We're talking about pronouns. We're talking about uh, intersex conditions. And we're trying to give that blueprint that I just gave, you know, very briefly on this podcast that we have answers in God's word, specifically on these questions that, uh, that touch male and female. Um, we, we have answers in, in the early chapters of, of Genesis, Genesis one and two, before sin enters the world in the fall, we see Jesus doing the same thing, uh, in Matthew 19, when he's asked about divorce, where does he take his opponents? He says, from the beginning, it was not so. Uh, But God created marriage, you know, male and female, he created them and he he created them for lifelong unions. So this curriculum, again, it's it's an eight-week study, Uh, has a leader guide, has questions with answers, even has a video component for each week. So we got uh, Dr. Moeller to do a video. We've got uh, H.B. Charles, Rosaria Butterfield, Heath Lambert, sort of experts in their fields that um, are free available to those that get the curriculum. And you can use that, you know, in whatever way that that would be helpful to you. But again, I just want to emphasize the point of this curriculum uh, is not to take away from the Bible, but to point us back to the Bible, which which does have everything that we need for life and godliness.
0: That's excellent. I think that's, that's going to be a really valuable resource. Um, we've been um, at our church, um, we, we just finished up uh, an equipping class uh, based on we were using uh, Carl Truman's Strange New World. Oh, yeah, great book. And yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. But it, it was it was the conversation surrounding that was so interesting to me because um it it was like it gave people permission to talk about what they're seeing out, you know, at at their jobs and in the the, the you know, their schools and everything. Yes, in a way that, you know, I think a lot of people have been afraid to bring this stuff up at churches. And I think You know, having you know, going through this curriculum, um, you know, I I, we're going to be doing uh, going through Natasha Crane's Faithfully Different Hmm. as well. Just how to respond to this this cultural moment. Uh, I think people in our churches are hungry to talk about it, and they need to be given kind of that permission um, from you know church leadership that it's okay to talk about this. We we've you know Bible does have the answers. We need to be looking there. So I appreciate that you guys are putting out that resource
1: yeah, you're exactly right, Josh.
0: Um,
1: I was gonna say real quick, um, you know, we have to remember that our people are getting inundated and catechized by culture twenty four seven. They're on social media. They're watching the TV. They're watching the TV shows. They're watching the movies that are getting pumped out by Disney with their subtle messages of um of transgenderism and homosexuality. So we need to be able to give people, just like you said, language and space. Um, biblical answers for these questions that are having, I, you know, I've been executive director for, for going on six years now. So since 2017 at CBMW, and the number one request we were getting was, do you have a curriculum uh, that we can just go through with our church, with our small group uh, about these things? And so that's what we were trying to do with this. We we're just trying to answer our emails uh, and say, yeah, you know, we're we're going to try to help as best we can. Uh, but I I love the resources you just mentioned. I did the same thing with our small group in, at First Baptist Mays. We went through Strange New World, and the conversations were very rich, and a lot of people appreciated Carl Truman's work there.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I thank you so much for your time. I like to end each uh, episode with uh, a question. What is giving you hope right now?
1: Oh, man, what is giving me hope? Um, I wish everybody could come and worship with Kenwood Baptist Church uh here in Louisville Kentucky on a Sunday morning um my church and my church family and and my immediate family is giving me so much hope um so many young people uh so many older saints that are not budging an inch to culture they're not they're not moving they are sticking with God's word foundationally uh they're not going to be swayed they've got their anchor in Christ and come what may uh, we're going to sing praises to to God, to His Son, uh, until He returns. And so, I I'm really encouraged. I, you know, we talk about a lot of uh, you know doom and gloom in, in the culture and and all the things, the decline narratives uh, that are out there, and it really is getting pretty pretty awful. Uh, but not in the four walls of, of Kenwood Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, and that gives me great hope.
0: yeah oh, Amen. I'm, our church has just been such a source of um... Encouragement. You, know, you get in there with the, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're singing uh, songs of worship. You're hearing the Word uh, expounded. I cannot recommend finding a good, biblically sound church that is is not being tossed to and fro by the the cultural winds and waves. Um, nothing like it.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Well, thank you so much, Colin. I uh, really appreciate this.
1: Thank you, Josh. I appreciate you having me on.
0: That's our show for today. Big thanks to Colin Smothers for joining me for this conversation. If you would like to purchase the curriculum he mentioned, you can find links where you can uh, buy that in the show notes. Again, that is male and female. He created them. I think it's going to be an excellent resource for churches, small groups, families to go through. Um, I trust anything coming out of CBMW. I think they're a really solid resource for the church. Uh, if you'd like to follow Colin on Twitter, he is uh, there at Colin C-O-L-I-N S-M-O Colin Smo, a great person to follow there always uh, offering insightful commentary on the issues of our day if you found this conversation helpful please share it with a friend I think um, especially if you have any Southern Baptists in your life this is going to be where the conversation is headed in the coming months as uh, this summer's convention uh, draws near so uh, definitely um send this to people as a resource to help um, guide that conversation. Um, If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and hit like and subscribe. If you are listening uh, on podcast, ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts are always helpful. Until next time, I will talk to you soon.